This is Brad Warren, host or co-host of the Changing Waters podcast produced by the National Fisheries Conservation Center, along with, uh, really in partnership with our friends at the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I'm really pleased to uh, introduce the first of two interviews with Glenn Spain, who is Northwest Regional Director of the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations. To put the cards on the table, I've been watching and learning from Glenn's work uh, since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, probably starting 40 years ago. Uh, At that time, uh, fishermen on the coast, particularly in the troll and crab fisheries, had a troll salmon fishing, uh, had a long history already of working to protect a functioning ocean and functioning rivers that make salmon. and Glenn has been one of the leaders in that work. He's here today to talk with us about two things. The first that we'll hear about now is a long-running and now looking like successful effort, not, not a done deal, but getting there, to bring uh, better control to temperatures induced by human activities, increased temperatures uh, induced by human activities in the Columbia River, the largest salmon-producing river in the world in its day, and still one of the largest remaining, even in its greatly damaged state. Glenn, I've been listening to you for a long time and watching your work. It's good. Thank you for being here. Uh, Glad to be here and glad to be helpful. Tell us, uh, on the Columbia River, why does hot water matter? Well, it matters a lot for salmon. Salmon are cold water fish. They evolved in glacial rivers uh, thousands of years ago and they need that cold water in order to survive. If the water's temperature gets above the, the what's called the magic, magic number, about 20 centigrade, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit, their uh, systems get stressed. They're more vulnerable to disease. They uh, tend to die um, a faster rate. And uh, for every degree above that, it starts to escalate rapidly uh, to the point where if they have to sustain water temperatures of above about 68 degrees Fahrenheit for an extended period of time, many of them die. We saw that in the prior years. And uh, also the juvenile stage uh, and egg stage are even more sensitive to water temperatures. So you can wind up with the eggs dying and a whole year class basically disappearing from the earth if you're not careful with that water temperature. So that's the big issue. Got it. And it, I understand that you've spent decades working to get policies in, in implemented uh, under the Clean Water Act that are meant to control this problem. Tell us about how that began and where we are now. Well, I started working with the PCFFA, which is, uh, of course, <clears throat> the largest organization of commercial fishing families on the West Coast um, many years ago in the 70s and started uh, uh, working with them as a client uh, when I graduated from law school in 78 and then helped them found uh, some years later, their sister organization, Institute for Fisheries Resources, which is primarily research and habitat protection conservation organization run by commercial fishermen and fishing families. And um, the reason is that they're totally dependent. Their whole uh, livelihoods are dependent on those fisheries. And those fisheries are dependent on a clean environment, healthy river systems, 
and intact watersheds, which are disappearing rapidly because of overdevelopment in a variety of places all up and down the coast. And so I have the privilege of working for a major industry on environmental protections that protect that industry and protect their livelihoods. Great. And using the Clean Water Act on the Columbia River, how did that begin? Well, keep in mind that the Columbia River is the largest salmon-producing river in the world. Uh, Still is, although it's greatly reduced in terms of the number of fish it can uh, produce. It was originally on the order of uh, 12 to 16 million adult returns every year coming back from the ocean and providing an enormous abundance for the Native Americans that lived up and down the river. When um, Europeans came, they took advantage of that abundance. In fact, they started uh, basically making good use of it. But unlike the, the native tribes, they were not doing it sustainably in a lot of ways. And in the process, they were also developing the very heartland watershed areas that provide those salmon. And that uh, uh, is one of the reasons that uh, we're facing the kind of situations we are today. The other thing is salmon are the major part of the food chain of at least 138 other species, not just orcas, which have been in the news lately, but grizzly bears, bald eagles, uh, thousands of other uh, uh, impacts in the environment. And um, our forests in the Northwest uh, are typically nutrient poor they survive and thrive when those salmon, which go out to sea as juveniles, raise themselves, uh, grow to adulthood in the ocean, uh, eating uh, nutrients in the ocean, and bring those nutrients back up shore uh, and upstream and die and spawn and die in their um, natal rivers. That's a huge portion of the nutrients for our forests and for uh, dozens of species that are forest dependent. If we let the salmon go into extinction, as we're unfortunately doing more and more, it will mean the extinction of dozens of other species and the destruction of the ecosystem that provides a lot of the substance and sustenance of the Pacific Northwest. And you've been working, again, specifically using the Clean Water Act to defend those resources. Can you tell us about how that applies to the thermal limits of the fish in the river? Well, let's look at the Clean Water Act. Uh, That was uh, adopted in 1972, uh, Richard Nixon. And by the way, it was nearly unanimous uh, bipartisan vote in the uh, Congress, which is and under Republican president. And its purpose was to prevent what was starting to happen in a lot of places. There were dramatic media stories like whole rivers, the Cuyahoga River bursting into flame and burning for days, but also the very source of water that we were drinking in many of our cities was being polluted. And the Clean Water Act was passed in order to prevent that kind of pollution in our uh, waters. Among other things, it provided for some state authority also uh, to uh, protect its waters for its own citizens. Now, it was passed in 72. There was supposed to be a statute. There was a statutory deadline, 1979, for creating lists of polluted rivers. Uh, 
it's called a 303D list because of the section in the Clean Water Act, but basically it's a list of water quality limited rivers. And that is supposed to give the states then the opportunity and obligation under law to create pollution control systems, to create maximum amounts of pollution uh, standards. Those are called TMDLs in technical terms. Total Maximum Daily Load, TMDL. It's an acronym for a pollution standard, uh, maximum. Um, and one of those uh, pollution factors is temperature. Uh, many species are affected by high temperatures. Um, not just your chemical pollution, but the fact that you're much more sensitive as an aquatic species to lots of other impacts if your temperatures are out of the range of comfort for your species. So what happened is the states of Oregon and Washington were supposed to come up with their lists by 1972, and they never did. It wasn't until about mid-1990s when Oregon and Washington started taking the Clean Water Act seriously, coming up with their water quality limited stream segment list, And then that was updated in 2001. Uh, But one of the major components of that was the Columbia River. The Columbia and its tributaries are vitally important. Uh, They straddle the border between Oregon and Washington all the way up into Idaho. Uh, In the Snake River, particularly, uh, a number of segments were water quality limited because of the the, uh, effects of dams. And the way dams work is they take a beautiful, fast-moving, cold water river and turn it into a stagnant, large, uh, radiation-absorbing reservoir. And that has created a lot of problems uh, within those river segments. So what happened is in 2001, EPA started working with the states to actually put together some temperature standards for the Columbia River. And the EPA actually listed, uh, issued a draft in July 2003, which did nothing, uh, went nowhere. It was a good draft, but it was essentially squashed by the Bureau, uh, the uh, Bonneville Power Administration and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Bonneville runs and the Corps of Engineers manages and builds the dams. So it was a political pulling of the plug of this whole process. So the agencies were out of compliance with the Clean Water Act. The uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers was actually sued, I think, by by a Columbia Riverkeeper in 2013, and the court ordered them to comply with the Clean Water Act. But there were no TMDLs because the states had not gone forward. And under the Clean Water Act, there is a situation where if the state refuses to adopt a TMDL, the EPA must adopt it for them. If the um, state issues a TMDL, which is then denied by EPA as insufficient, EPA has to do it for them. It was unclear what happens when you start a process, stick it in the mud, and leave it there for, as it turns out, 14 years. 14 years later, we sued them. Uh, ourselves, Columbia Riverkeeper, Snake River Waterkeeper, Idaho Rivers United, PCFFA, and the Institute for Fisheries Resources, sued the states and, and sued EPA for fit, sued EPA basically for failure to adopt uh, TMDLs, uh, 
pollution water standards for temperature. Uh, the Trump administration argued that they didn't have any obligation to since the state had not uh, avoided TMDLs. During that period of time, the states had adopted over 1,200 other TMDLs, but not for temperature, again, because of political resistance. Uh, in uh, 2009, uh, excuse, uh, 2019, we won. The U.S. District Court did not buy that a state can avoid its statutory obligations forever by simply doing nothing, uh, starting a process, leaving it forever. Uh, and the court ordered the EPA to do what is called response to a constructive uh, submission, assume that the state submitted a TMDL that was inadequate, that was essentially nothing, and move to do it for the states, particularly the state of Washington. Um, they started that process, EPA uh, appealed it under Wheeler, who's um, uh, Trump EPA director at the time in the Trump administration. They lost the appeal. They uh, asked the Ninth Circuit for reconsideration. They lost that. And in March 2020, EPA was ordered to create that TMDL pollution standard for temperature for the, the Columbia River, which they did. Uh, in the meantime, the state of Washington, to its credit and to the credit of Governor Inslee, started moving the state process to adopt it and did so in 2019. And um, then in uh, May 2020, um, agreed to try to enforce it. They started to move forward toward enforcing those temperature standards for the Columbia River, particularly in the Snake River. In the meantime, the Trump administration tried to undo the Clean Water Act entirely, still trying to do that, even as we speak, by eliminating the authority of the states to protect its own waters from pollution. That's what is called 401 certification authority. To back up a little bit, a project that is going to affect water in a state has to meet water quality standards of the state after its construction. It has to show that it will. And it has to get certified under the Clean Water Act of Section 401. The Trump administration is trying to eliminate that power. Uh, and that's challenged in court. It's doubtless illegal in a variety of ways because it's clear and straightforward in the statute that that's what the states are given as uh, the power to protect their own watersheds. So where we are today is that the state of Washington is trying to enforce that. The um, system, the Columbia River dams system is under review. There was a thing called this, the Columbia River System Operation Review plan, which just concluded September with a record of decision, and more or less ignored the issue. And our organization, along with others, have filed 60-day notice to sue, and we will be taking them to court on that as well as other issues on the operation of the Columbia River system. There is there are a number of things that can be done to make temperature standards improve in the Columbia. The uh, states are willing to do it. The states want to do it. The states are requiring the feds to do it, and the feds are basically kissing them off. Mm. That's where we are today. Got it. 
What's the trend in temperatures in the river? Well, one of the problems is, and we're seeing it more and more, the ten trend is up. And that's because we are suffering in the Northwest from climate change impacts. You can see it in the temperature. A friend of mine pointed, uh, uh, he's, he's a climatologist. He pointed out that at this point in time, if you say you don't believe in climate change, what you're saying is you don't believe in thermometers. Mm-hmm. The thermometers show that the water temperature over the last 50 years has continued to climb. This is very dangerous for salmon. Now, rather than an occasional spike, we see days and days of temperatures above 68 Fahrenheit. We see much above that in certain places. And see, I'm assuming we see the mortality that goes with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. A couple or three years ago, we lost nearly all the salmon in the Columbia River because of hot water temperatures. Mm-hmm. The impact of that, of course, is no fisheries, no food for orcas, no tribal fisheries. You know, the devastation that that causes is, is enormous in terms of economic dislocation up and down the coast. Um, the, the, the issue, you know, the economic issues in the Columbia have to be balanced by the fact that doing nothing is also costly. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, what would be the single greatest physical action to, um, retard this warming and limit the contribution of the dam operations to it? Well, there's a debate on whether we need all the dams at all. And that I won't touch at this point, except to say that every dam was built for a purpose. Uh, And the Snake River dams in particular were built primarily for transportation. They're not flood control dams. They provide almost no irrigation. Uh, their only purpose, they don't generate a lot of hydropower, not in today's world where the region is awash with excess hydropower. The hydropower they actually produce is often sold at a loss on the market. It's surplus power. The only real reason they exist is to provide a transportation corridor up to Lewiston, which to a large degree is no longer needed. Uh, but you can say for any dam, it has an engineered lifespan. And all of the dams in the Columbia have an engineered lifespan, and many of them are at or exceeding their engineered lifespan. In other words, they must be replaced. We can replace them in a smarter way. We can replace their energy and their other benefits in a smarter way, in ways that do not impact the river, kill fish, and destroy whole economic uh, regions that depend on those resources. There is a thing called the Columbia Basin Partnership, which we're part of, working on a 100-year restoration plan for salmon that includes dam removal because many of those dams will have to be removed or delicensed or replaced over the next 100 years. And so we have those opportunities. We need to rethink how the river is. We need to ask ourselves, do we want an industrial corridor or do we want a river that runs like a river and supports all the enormous numbers of benefits, including massive salmon runs, that that river once produced? Those are questions the region itself has to address. Right. Now, I've heard people argue that um, Lewiston would dry up and blow away and that farmers would lose their access to markets uh, if we undammed uh any significant stretch of either the Columbia or the Snake, which is its largest tributary going up there to Idaho. What 
uh, what's your sense of, of, of the strength or weakness of that argument? Well, it's weak in a number of ways. There are benefits uh, to the dams to Lewiston, but those benefits are diminishing. The other thing is before the dams were built, the Snake River dams were completed in the 60s, I think. Um, people shipped grain by barge from Richland. Richland was the hub, not Lewiston. Even today, the rails are still there, and it's sometimes you wind up with rails that are shipping grain east to go to Lewiston, and then they come west by barge um, past Richland. By, by reasserting the original construction of the river system, we don't really need the, the dams where they are. Also, barge traffic in Lewiston is diminishing. Um, there are maintenance problems, dredging problems that are going to be expensive. And you know, I suppose you know, people should know that the river corridor for transportation is not free. It's taxpayer subsidized. And we're paying billions of dollars in mitigation uh, through BPA rates for things that the dams create that shouldn't have occurred to begin with if they'd been properly engineered. The other thing is that um, if you look at the, the, all the costs and all the benefits in a, 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 an equal way, a rational way, you find that that river corridor is the most expensive, most heavily subsidized uh, transportation corridor in the country. That's a big statement. Uh, because we subsidize transportation all over the place, um, so if you if you work it out to cost per ton, uh, it, it's externalized and put on the customer rather on the taxpayer most of that cost. In this case, it's externalized and put on the river and the various um, uh, communities that depend on the resources like the salmon of the river and depend on water quality standards in the river for drinking water and a variety of other things. That can be rethought and it can be re-engineered. Right. So if I hear you right, uh, you're not arguing for modification of dam operations to increase flows for salmon to survive better. Uh, you're arguing for removal so that the river behaves like a river. What I'm pointing out is that every dam is different. There's a, a different mix of benefits and different mix of liabilities that come with each project. They need to be rethought. And each one, there are some dams that should remain. There are some dams that should never have been built and should be removed. And in the end, every dam is a human construct. It has a lifespan. So it, every dam you see in 100 years will exceed its engineered safe lifespan. Uh, that gives us opportunity to make some major changes. Uh, we've worked with uh, landowners uh, to remove dams in uh, Oregon. The Savage Rapids Dam is a perfect example. We replaced that dam with something that provided the irrigation benefits that they needed, but didn't block the river. That can be done in a variety of places. Right. Um, looking at the Columbia and the Snake, if you... Um... If, if you ran, and I'm assuming by now somebody must have run model studies to look at this, if, if you ran model studies on the thermal results of dam removal, do we know what that is? There's no question that the reservoirs and the way they're constructed right now, the way they're run, are a major source of hot water in the system. 
you just think about it. What you're doing is you're taking a cold water system, you're stopping it, you're spreading it out so it's got a lot more surface area, and you're exposing it to sunlight all the time, everywhere, in a much larger surface area. There's no doubt that this, the physics tell us that it's going to heat up. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. problem is that the hot water dams or hot water reservoirs encourage predator fish that predate on salmon. So our salmon are having to deal with an ecosystem that is turned hostile on them because of the higher temperatures, not just the temperature itself, but that it tends to exacerbate and encourage warm water predators. There are toxic algae bloom problems in a lot of places that are increasingly of of concern. Those are toxins that affect humans as well as fish. Um, There are a lot of difficulties when you create a system that is engineered by nature to provide certain benefits and you try to engineer it with the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, nature can produce a salmon better, cheaper, faster, and more durable than the Army Corps of Engineers any day of the year. Yeah. Uh, I don't know anyone, even the advocates of hatcheries, uh, you know, who have many points to make, uh, who would argue that point. Um, I I guess I want to avoid mm, bilateral thinking. You need to look at each dam and you need to look at each river system individually and um, as a whole to figure out what you need to do to bring salmon back to an area. There may be areas where fish passage can be improved. There may be areas where taking water from lower in the water column, which is colder, and putting that through the dams will decrease the water temperature below it. We have done a number of things. There, there may be a lot of uh, things that can be done, um, but dam removal is an option that should remain on the table. And keep in mind that uh, the dams were not built by God. They weren't dropped there by glaciers. They're human constructs, and they were engineered to last only long uh, for a certain period of time and only to provide certain benefits. When those benefits are no longer viable, as, for instance, hydropower, because we're awash with hydropower and we're in the process of changing over to a whole renewables hydropower grid, it's time to rethink. And that's what we need to do as a region. Understood. Uh, If you look at the potential outcomes of your suit, for which you've given 60-day notice to to file, uh, could a new administration respond differently and produce an outcome that results in no lawsuit? Uh, yes. Um, however, remember these are f- the, the Snake River dams are federal dams, so it would require federal approval to remove them. That's not um, impossible. We did that with the Elwha Dam. Elwha was a federal dam, and it was approved for removal after a long campaign by the federal Congress. Then the funding was stuck because of political issues for a long period of time, but the funding came and that dam is down. And it shows that the salmon come back rapidly when they're allowed to uh, reach the area that they were originally evolved to occupy. So we can do a lot of things. And within the Columbia Basin, there are a lot of barriers that need to be removed. Remember, there are a couple of hundred dams in the Columbia Basin. Mm-hmm. Um, no one really has, actually has an accurate list of all the dams in the basin, oddly enough. 
Yeah, I've seen numbers as high as 400 recently. Yeah. Of which 50 uh, some are main stem, you know. Major. Yeah, it all depends on how you define a dam. It all depends on what state and each state accounts them differently. And so there's no real cohesive plan for how to restore salmon to the Columbia until the Columbia Basin Partnership. And we now have a cohesive basin-wide long-term plan with some goals and some benchmarks. It's just the, really right off the press. Um, we were part of that several year effort to hammer that out. But one of that, one of the, the principles of that is we can't take anything off the table. We can't, uh, uh, we can't avoid thinking in a, a basin wide because every salmon is going to migrate up and down the basin. Every water problem is going to migrate downriver. Uh, we have lots of difficulties um, that we create for ourselves by fragmenting across state lines, even across international lines, because a good portion of the Columbia Basin is in Canada. We need to think that through and really realize that we have the obligation to restore a system that, frankly, mostly broke. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we've often found ourselves saying uh, we broke the ecosystem in salmon country. Now we have the Humpty Dumpty job. It's a uh, it's a long and hard one. Um, do um, do you see uh, near future oppor opportunities for ordinary folks to weigh in and make a difference on this issue? Absolutely. Tell um, us about those. Yeah. I'll give you some examples of people doing it. Uh, the Yakima Basin is a very important sub-basin in the Columbia River. People there have been working together in a cooperative way to replumb the system, put water back in the Yakima River that was gone for more than 70 years. The salmon are now using that as a corridor. It includes a combination of some dams built mostly off-stream off dams for storage, uh, some water reserved for irrigation, some water reserved for in-river flows for fish, um, working on sources of pollution to minimize or eliminate those, to reconnect disconnected areas. Um, there are lots of things that are d happening up there that are well worth uh, emulating. It's a good model. Mm -hmm. um, elsewhere, of course, the Snake River dams are um, in debate as to what the, their fate will be. Uh, remember that the Snake River is the largest tributary to the Columbia and produced about 40% of its salmon originally. Yes. Um, and, and by the way, people should realize that the original Corps of Engineers estimate uh, for building the Snake River dams was negative. They th thought that the dams would be far more costly than whatever benefits they could provide, plus extinguish a major salmon industry. And that's exactly what happened. They were built before environmental analysis was a requirement, before NEPA. They were built by congressional fiat. A bunch of senators at the bequest of land developers and speculators basically passed a bill saying, thou shalt build these dams regardless of consequences. We can do better that than that today. Right. Um, I wonder, uh, and this is, this is, this comes to a, a, a different, I'm thinking of a different kind of listener here. 
there are people who just love salmon, but they live in Seattle or Portland. They're not active in watershed management. Uh, and they're probably um, thinking of whether they should eat salmon anymore. This is a common question I get asked a lot. Uh, and I, I wonder how you would ask that, how you would answer that question. And what can a consumer do that's actually useful? Well, the most important thing to realize is that people eat, who eat salmon, who catch salmon, who distribute salmon, who make salmon their livelihoods are the most important frontline defenders of salmon and watershed protection. Our organization are commercial fishing families. The, the largest portion of that once was the salmon runs. The fact that so much of that has been lost means that a lot of our communities are at risk and a lot of our economies are at risk. Those people are advocates, you know, paying people like me to go and work on these watershed problems and uh, change the, the, the scenario so that salmon have a place to live and have uh, uh, an important role in the economy. We're talking about $500 million a year minimum in terms of economic benefits that we have lost in something like 25,000 jobs that we have lost in the region because of the declines of salmon so, uh, over the last several decades. That's the bad news. The good news is we can recover all of those. We can recapture those by investing in watershed protection, investing in better temperature control systems in dams, investing in fish passage where it's appropriate, investing in removing dams where it's appropriate. People often do a skewed cost-benefit analysis. You take the cost of change and you say, that's going to cost us. But you don't look at the cost of doing what you're doing now the wrong way over and over. The cost of doing nothing is often immense. And a lot of people ignore the fact that those change creates benefits. If we can restore the salmon run, uh, runs in the largest salmon producing river system in the world, we generate thousands of jobs, some 25,000 or more jobs. We generate them in a sustainable way as well. Um, they won't disappear over time. They will be there for our, our descendants. Environmental protection is an investment. It's not a cost. The source of all of our economic wealth ultimately is the environment. We only got one planet. That's all we have to deal with. You can buy and sell pieces of that planet, but ultimately it's where the, the pieces come from, where the salmon grow, where they provide food for the communities that is the important part of our economy that drives all of the economic benefits that we've got. We need to realize that, and more and more people are. Our policies need to, need to be placed in that direction. So Glenn, I think I hear you making a case for it's a little bit of a critique of some of the ideas that have been promoted very heavily in the in the sustainable fisheries movement, actually, where we've encouraged this thinking that, well, I can buy the right fish and avoid the wrong fish and that'll fix things. And you're actually saying, I think, no, don't just use your wallet at the fish counter. Use your mouth. Speak up for these fish. Yeah, if we don't defend our food chain, who will? There you go. Well said, sir. Thank you once again for uh, listening to Changing Waters on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. 
uh, co-produced by the National Fisheries Conservation Center and our friends at ASPN. Uh, that was Glenn Spain, and uh, we'll be back with Glenn soon for a second interview, uh, looking at this time not at the Columbia River, but at a long and, again, very successful effort to uh, uh, improve conditions for salmon in another of the mighty rivers of the West Coast, right at the center of the coast, uh, the Klamath River, uh, where some very great signs of progress are taking shape. Uh, stand by for that, and thank you. <laughs>